Passion Church, the DeSoto County campus, the fun church in Horn Lake, Mississippi. For more information, visit us at www.mypassion.church. Why y'all shaking your head at me? Y'all know me by now. God is love. And his love should not be in question. But it always seems to be. Romans 8 1 says, There's therefore now no condemnation to them who belong to Christ Jesus. Condemnation was what was written over our name. We were condemned because of our sin. But Jesus took our sin and he wrote something better on his cross. He, he, he nailed our sins to his cross. He took our shame. And now we're no longer condemned. And condemnation is, is, is a reality that was but is not. But condemnation is also a feeling that we get sometimes. When we begin to bring our sins back upon ourselves and we begin to view ourselves through the lens of where we used to be, not realizing what Jesus has done for me. It's like we can't grasp the goodness of God. We can't grasp the reality of God. It's just easier to beat ourselves up. I don't know. Maybe I'm just preaching to myself. Because I can relate to what I'm saying. I don't know about you, but I've always struggled with condemnation. I've always struggled with beating myself up, throwing pity parties instead of a hallelujah party. If I were to tell you, I thought about what is the phrase that I most use with God when I'm in prayer time? You may not know this and may not suspect this, but I thought about it. The thing I say most to God is, I'm sorry. And I'm not sure that that's the way my prayer life should be. I will be praying, God, I'm sorry I didn't get here earlier. God, I'm sorry that... I didn't do more today. God, I'm sorry I watched TV when I should have been reading the Word. God, I'm sorry. God, I know you're, you're saying, here he goes again. The sorry fest. Well, I'm sorry. <laughs> Anybody do that? Well, I'm not the only one. So we focus on our failures and our sins. And when you do that, what you focus on is what you become. We get sin conscious. We're so conscious of our sin that we see ourselves as sinful, so we allow ourselves to be sinful. That's just the way it works. But God is saying a new word over our lives. In 2 Corinthians 5, he says, You 
have become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. You are right with me. Stop seeing yourself and, and saying you're sorry about the past when the past should be in your past at last because I threw it in the sea of forgetfulness. Now, I'm not saying don't say you're sorry if you've done something fresh, you know. I'm not saying there's not repentance in the heart of a believer. I'm not saying any of that. I'm just saying we take it way too far and we lose sight that we've been forgiven past, present, and future he wasn't just taking our past sins because when he was here we wasn't even here yet but he said it is finished and he took all the sins of all mankind you can also look in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and it will tell you plainly that God is not up there holding our sin against us because the sin debt has been paid We focus on our sins and failures. And if they could have caused God to withhold his love from us, then he would have withheld it a long time ago. Because we've been sinning a long time. But he hasn't withheld it. Romans 5, 8 says God showed his great love. Say great love. Great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. If he loved you back when you didn't even know him, and didn't care about him, used his name as a cuss word, don't he love you now that at least you've moved a, for a little bit forward from that? At least you're here today? You, at least you have a heart to want to do better? I think so. God is not afraid of our yuckiness. Is that a word? Well, that'll be our word for the day. God is not afraid of our yuckiness there was Jesus was meeting uh, he was eating in the house of some Pharisees and a sinful woman made her way in and she fell down at the feet of Jesus and she was crying and, and, and washing his feet with the tears and her hair and all those self-righteous religious people were sitting over there saying they were thinking if, they, if he knew what manner of woman this is, he would not let this go on. Jesus knew what manner of woman she was. You know how I knew he knew? <laughs> because he knew what they were thinking. They didn't even say it out loud, but he addressed it. He said, you didn't even give me any water for my feet when I came in here, but this woman hadn't done nothing but cry and wipe my feet with her hair and her tears since I got here. He wasn't afraid of her yuckiness. Do you know God knows that you poop and pick your nose? <sighs> All right, now. Settle down. <laughs> Does our selfishness scare Jesus off? Because we can be awful selfish. I, he's, not, he's not happy about it. But when that rich young ruler came and Jesus knew that he had an issue with greed and stuff, he said, well, sell all you have, give to the poor, come follow me. And the guy's like, no, I can't do that. All right, I'm out of here. 
And he walked away because of selfishness. But the Bible goes on to say that Jesus looked at him and he loved him. His selfishness did not stop Jesus' love. What about when we betray God? And we do it in so many ways. Somebody says something bad about God or Jesus or something and we don't, we don't defend him. And, or we just get in one of these moods that we just don't want to go to church for a couple months or years. We, we just step back out of our Christianity at will sometimes. We betray Christ in our lives. And I think about Jesus when he was in that circle at the Last Supper and he was on his hands and knees in a nasty pail of muddy water wiping the disciples' feet. And he came to Judas. And once again, he knew. He knew that that very night Jesus, Judas was going to betray him with a kiss. He knew that Judas was just play-acting. He really wasn't, his heart wasn't into his being a disciple, but yet, did he skip Judas? He washed Judas's feet. And some of you are holding on to a betrayal you did against him three years ago, like he just can't forgive you. And it's not true. What about our pride? We talked a lot last week about Peter and his prideful ways and how it caused him to fall because pride goes before destruction, haughtiness before a fall, right? And so we talked about Peter and his fall. But you know what? We are born with pride. I remember I was thinking about some ways I could tell you about my pride, and I was like, that's too many. We ain't got that long. But I thought about when I was about seven or eight years old, I was down at my grandpa's house, and he had some pecan trees, and we gathered up the pecans, and he wanted to sell them. And I said, Papa, I know what we need to do. Let's put a sign out on the 61 highway so that they can see you have pecans for sale. He said, sound like a good idea there, boy. I said, all right. So I went to the barn, and I cut me out. I had old hand saw and cut me off a piece of plywood, and I started painting on it. And in letters about that tall, I wrote across the top, pecans for sale. And then in letters about this big, I wrote, buy, guy, Sheffield now wait I wasn't writing it on there because they were my pecans I was writing it on there because I had seen when somebody paints a picture they put their name on it and so I had painted this sign so I wanted to put my name on it and let them know who painted the sign and we set it out on the 61 highway and as you drove by all you could see was my guy Sheffield at 55 miles an hour. <laughs> you know what? They weren't my pecans. They weren't even Papa's pecans. God gives the pecans, but we want to put our name on the plaque. We want people to see us. And I was seven or eight years old. I didn't know what pride was, but it was there. Look, God owns the pecans on a thousand hills. They all belong to him. What do we have that we weren't given? Everything, every gift that we possess, God gave it. And we need to stop putting our name on the sign. 
They're his pecans. But he never gives up on us. I'm still here. I'm still working with my next issue in pride, you know. What about when our doubts cause us to walk away? Jesus got crucified, and a couple of disciples said, well, let's go back home. They was on the road to Emmaus. They were seven miles out talking about, well, we thought he was the Messiah. Jesus got resurrected, and he took off right after those two. You know, Jesus is not afraid of your doubts. He's not afraid of any question that you have. If you're feeling like, I kind of believe in God, and I think Jesus is him, but I'm not sure, why don't you lay those questions before God? Why don't you get in the Bible and say, God, speak to me? He's not afraid of any... There's no uh, historian, there's no scientist. I don't care how many PhDs you got in front of your, your name. He's not afraid of them and their, their theories and their theology. As messed up as it may be, all what the world says, he's not afraid of those things because the truth is the truth and it doesn't have to be ashamed or it doesn't have to be afraid of anything. The truth just speaks for itself. And he is the way and he is the truth and he is the life and he's not afraid of your doubts and unbelief. We all have to come to that place. Don't, stop saying, well, I'm not a Christian because I don't believe or this and that. Stop making a big deal out of it. Just pursue because it's the most important question that you'll ever ask. And go to the source and he will reveal himself to you. He says, boy, I'm getting off on a tangent. Jesus got excited. He said, I, I thank you, God, that you reveal yourself to babes. And not unto these wise and learned people that think they got it all figured out. But those who will just come like a little kid and say, tell me, Daddy, is it true? So God loves us, though we're sinful, though we doubt him, though we walk away, we have pride, we betray him, we're selfish. I wrote, does, God, does a bad reputation make God turn away from you? I don't know of anybody in the Bible who could have had a worse reputation than the Pontiac in the tombs. I say Pontiac because I, that helps me remember how to say the word demoniac. But he's called the demoniac in the tombs. You know the fellow. Uh, he's over there. He's howling at the moon. He's running around naked, cutting himself with stones, and he's living in the graveyard. And he's filled with a legion of demons. And Jesus comes across the lake, and there's a huge storm. And it takes, uh, the, the, the disciples think they're going to die getting there. But they get there, and Jesus heals the demoniac, casts out the evil spirits, gets him in his right mind, clothes him, and you think, well, maybe Jesus just passing by, maybe he just ran into this guy by mistake. He didn't know his rip or something. But you see, after he does that, he turns around, gets back in the boat, and goes back to where he came from. He made the trip to heal that demoniac. Now, how much worse of a bad reputation can you get when the people say, man, that guy's nutty. He's crazy. He's cutting himself. We put him in shackles. They can't even hold him. Jesus don't care where you've been. He cares where you're going. 
uses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. The mere fact that you're listening to me right now proves that out. <laughs> and I'm telling you the truth. Do we have to have something to offer God before he'll love us? There was this one woman who had been bent over with a back problem or spine. Been facing the ground like this for 18 years. I don't know what she possibly could have, what her gifts and the abilities were, but if looking humanly speaking, she didn't have anything to offer the kingdom of God. But God straightened her back. God loved her. God loved the mute and the deaf and the blind and the lame and the demon possessed. God sees value where we don't. God knows what he puts into us and what we could possibly be. Now, let me say this. God hates sin, but he loves the sinner. Right? I'm not justifying that this, oh, so I can be any of these things I want to be and just keep going. No, God hates sin, but he loves the sinner. Why do you think he hates sin? Is it just a bunch of rules he made up just so that he can punish us? The wages of sin is what? Now, which one of you as a parent going to say, okay, to your kids, I know y'all think it's fun to smoke and to, to do drugs and stuff. Go ahead. I just want you to have fun. No parent's going to do that. Why did your parent tell you not to do those things? Because it was destroying you. It would destroy you. Some of us have grown up since then. We look back and we think, thank you, Mama. Thank you for telling me not to do this and not to do that. I see why now. See, it's an immature Christian who thinks, still thinks that they want to see how close that they can get to sin without falling in, without losing their Christian card. So what, what is your sin or your shortcoming that you think is so special that God's love can't cover it? The Bible says love covers a multitude of sins. What's, what's your sin that's just so special that Jesus' blood on the cross, just, man, it just it got all the way up to everybody else, but it just couldn't get past your stuff? Are you a murderer? David was. God called him a man after my own heart. Are you a prostitute? Don't raise your hand. A rhetorical question there was a prostitute a harlot named Rahab in the Bible do you know God turned her life around she, and she is written in the genealogy of Christ in Matthew chapter 1 where it starts with so and so begot so and so and it gives the lineage of Christ you know, back then when they wrote the genealogies, they didn't even mention women in them. It was just the men. And it was all men except, I think, I think Rahab was the only one mentioned. God went out of his way to say part of his genealogy was a harlot named Rahab. And did you know in Hebrews chapter 11, we call it the, the, the champions of faith or the hall of fame for faith, that the harlot named Rehab, Rehab, <laughs> you know, that's, that makes sense. She got rehabbed and now Rahab is in the hall of faith. 
Isn't that awesome? You're talking about we've all played the harlot with God if we want to be get honest. We've all cheated on God. In fact, there's a whole book of the Bible called Hosea. He's a minor prophet. And in the book of Hosea, God tells the prophet Hosea, he said, Hosea, I want you to go marry this prostitute. I mean, this prostitute living here over here in the red light district now, selling her body daily. I want you to go marry her. Can you imagine what the, the prophet's thinking? I'm a man of God. I'm supposed to be here. No, I'm not. He does what God says, and he marries this prostitute, this harlot, and her name is Gomer. Yeah, Gomer. Not Gomer Powell. But her name is Gomer. He marries her. He takes her out of the lifestyle that she's living in, puts her in a house, gives her respectability, puts a ring on her finger. They have three children together. Man, she's got it. She's got a turnaround there, isn't it? Got a fresh start in life. And then this Gomer goes back to a life of prostitution. I don't know why. Maybe she thought she missed the money. Maybe he, she thought that there was something better back in her past. She goes back into prostitution. And in Hosea chapter 3, verse 1, it says... This is Hosea speaking. He says, Then the Lord said to me, Go and love your wife again, even though she commits adultery and loves another, or with another lover. This will illustrate that the Lord still loves Israel, even though the people have turned to other gods and love to worship them. God was demonstrating through this relationship between Hosea and Gomer, his faithfulness, despite our unfaithfulness. And he was also showing us, if you read the rest of the, the I think it's 14 chapters of Hosea, he's showing a picture of how God brought the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt and made a covenant with them on Mount Sinai. Basically, a, a blood covenant with them, like we have. We have the blood of Jesus. We're in a new covenant, right? Amen. We got a new covenant established on better promises than this covenant. But the, the covenant he made with them was to marry them, basically. He, he was saying, I will be your God and you will be my people at Mount Sinai. And he brought them into the promised land eventually, those who would go. And they got into the promised land and they were eating out of fields that they did not plant, living in houses they did not build, living in the land of flowing with milk and honey. And guess what they did? They started whoring after other gods. And how many Christians do you know that God turned their life around, took them off the streets, gave them respectability and a hope and a future, and they went whoring after other gods, went back into the very prostitution that they had been delivered out of. And that's what Israel did. They hoard after other gods. And God is saying, go and love your wife again. This will illustrate that the Lord still loves Israel, that there's restoration still. That's love, folks. It's not the kind of love that we're used to. 
That's why it's hard for us to understand. But it's unconditional love. It's an everlasting love. It's a love that will change your very essence of who you are and your understanding of who you are if you will let it cover you. What shall separate us from the love of God? Nothing. 2 Timothy 2.13 says, If we are unfaithful, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny who he is. He's just loving. That's just going to be who he is. And you may think to yourself, well, that's like giving us a license to sin. You mean I can do all that stuff and he'll still love me? Listen, you didn't need a license before. You're doing fine just without one. You don't need a license to sin. I'm not telling you that you can go do all these things there not be consequences. What I'm telling you is that until you discover the love of God and let it permeate your heart, you will continue to live in sin. You will live below what God's love will do for you. But if you will let God's love in and receive it and focus on it instead of your sinful past, His righteousness instead of your yuckiness, then there'll be a heart change. His love will change your heart. And all of a sudden, your desires will be his desires. You won't want to sin anymore. You'll see him up on that cross, and you'll say, I ain't touching sin. I'm not, I'm not adding to the burden that he was carrying that day. I want to love him. Love is what changes the heart. Not rules. Love. There was a student asked the Professor Carl Barth to share the most significant theological truth that he had discovered in all of his years of study. Now, Barth had written 60 volumes of commentaries and theological studies, so he knew his stuff. Barth, Barth thought for a moment, he smiled, and he said, Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. A man who spent his life in pursuit of the truth of God and the most profound theological statement was simply that God loves me. And you probably heard this message how many times? 450, 60? But you need to hear it again. And again and again and again. The number one longing of a human heart is to be loved. You, you quit your job and you said it was because they didn't pay enough, but it was because they, you didn't feel loved there. You didn't feel respected there. They say most people quit their job is because they have no say there. It's not because of the money or the benefits. People just deep down, you may not even admit it, but you want to be loved. You may have put on this hard exterior, man, nobody can crack me, nobody can say nothing, I'm not, never going to cry. I'm not never. <clears throat> but deep down, you want to be loved. Assume with me for a moment that what I'm telling you today about God's love is true. That everything I've spoken here is true. And if you have sins that you haven't asked for forgiveness for, you could ask right now, and they would be forgiven. And you could be sitting there completely loved and forgiven and right with God. 
What are you going to do with that? Think about it for a moment. Let's stop playing church for a moment and stop listening to some guy spout off, but let's let, let's let a truth sink in for a moment. What if this is true? What if everything I claim to believe is really true? And I am that loved. And I am that forgiven. If I really believe it, what should I be doing with it? The evidence. No, you, that's up to you. The evidence of do you really believe it is how you're living. Is what are you doing right now? See, the change is going to come when you get a hold of this. You stop beating yourself up. You stop running yourself down. You stop seeing yourself as, as unable. And then you're going to want to love him back. If this is true, if this is true, we ought to want to love him back with everything that we are. We ought to give our lives to him. But some of us are scared because we think, I don't know how to love him back. Maybe I won't do good. I've actually ministered to folks and asked them did they want to receive Christ and gave them the gospel and they were like, yeah, but I can't right now. I'm like, why can't you? They said, because I know I'll mess it up and I'm not ready yet. The Bible says in 1 John 4, 19, we love him because he first loved us. See, we got to get the right order of things. We want to say, well, I can love him, but then I, I keep failing at loving him. That's because you don't realize his love for you. If you get the right order, you let him love you, you receive his love, you will have no problem loving him or anyone else. Don't try to Get it backwards. Well, I got to love him before I can receive him. Until you receive him, you don't have the love of God shed abroad in your heart. You don't have the love to love your wife and your husband and your children the way you ought to. But if you surrender to his love, you will. And if you keep surrendering, it'll keep growing. And you'll become this love powerhouse. I'm telling you good stuff. Some of you say... Well, I want to love him, but I'm afraid because that scripture says, if you, Jesus said, if you love me, you obey my commandments. And I don't want to do that. I don't think I can do that. 1 John 5, 3 says, For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. burdensome. See, we're going back to that old thought that, man, he's telling me to do stuff that's going to take away my fun. No, he's telling you to do stuff that's going to create true life in you, the abundant life in you. You've just been too dumb to recognize it. You've been too immature, too adolescent, thinking that you've got to do something rebellious to, to have a life worth living. I'm telling you, the real exciting life is walking with Christ, walking in his love. His love calls you out of your yuckiness. 
We love him because he first loved us. we got to let him love us. Then that love in our heart will call us out of our yuckiness. His love reforms us and transforms us. His love restores us as it pours on us. I wrote this, God's love is like a river. You can sit, watch it go by, or maybe you can stick a toe in it. Or you can let it swallow you up until it drowns out all of your fears and insecurities. You can just let go. Go in, go under. Plumb the depths. The deeper you go under, the more secure you are in God's love. You know what the perfect expression of love ever is? The cross. I think about Jesus in that garden. And such agony over him about, about what's about to happen to him. And the torment of the devil. He just begins to sweat great drops of blood and I don't know about you but I'm sitting there and I'm praying in travail and all of a sudden blood's coming out of my pores I might say whoa I'm getting up from here right now I'm going to back up okay I done went a little too far but Jesus didn't back up because he was keeping his eyes on you on the prize on the hope set before him he didn't he said nevertheless not my will but thine be done and then his disciples, they all fled and left him alone. And one of them kissed him and betrayed him and turned him over to, into the hands of sinners. And they began to beat on him and rip his beard out and spit in his face and call him all manner of names and slander him. And at any time he could have said, okay, God, I was thinking it was going to be a little different. I'm going to back out right now. I'm going to go ahead and call those legions of angels down here to save me. But it was his love for you. It was his love for you that when he was on his knees holding on to that whipping post as they beat him unrecognizable as a human. And it's in trauma, shaking, not knowing if he's even going to survive to the cross. He's not willing to tap out. They get him up. They put a cross on his shoulder and he carries it as far as he can and he just physically collapses and they get somebody else to help him carry it. Then they get him on top of a hill called Calvary and they slap his body down on the cross onto that splintered, old bloody rugged cross and they took nails and I'm not talking about imaginary nails I'm not talking about little Bible story nails I'm talking about real rusty metal nails with a real hammer into real skin 
real blood vessels, real bones in there, in his feet. And his love for you is so important that he hangs there as your sin is poured out. Now, wait a minute, what? He did all that, all that physical torment, but then he gets to a place where the skies turn dark. And the sin of all mankind and the wrath of God Almighty is poured for us is poured out on him. Now he's bearing our sins and He could say, oh, I didn't know they were this depraved. I didn't realize they were this yucky. He's, the thing you do that nobody knows, he knew at that moment. So much that he said, my God, my God, why have thou forsaken me? It, it, it separated him from the Father, the, our yuckiness. He had never been separated from the Father. And surely now he's like, no, I can't take this, God, this darkness, this, this lack of connection with love. This is, this, I can't do it anymore. Take me from here. But he didn't. He hung there until he was finished. Anywhere along that road to Calvary. He could have decided that your love wasn't worth it. That your yuckiness was too great. That there was nothing that you had to offer. You're full of pride. You're full of doubt and unbelief. And, and you know what you did last night. You know your nothing is something. Isaiah, the prophet, chapter 49, verse 15, says, Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child that she has born? And we look around in society today and we say, Yeah. Amazingly, we see mothers having no compassion on their children. But he goes on to say, Though she may forget, I will not forget you. The moment you realize the cross is the moment you realize your worth. It's not just a fable or a fairy tale. What shall separate us from the love of God? Got another question. What is the sum of life without God's love? If you add it all up, what is the sum of life without God's love? Nothing. What is the sum of life without love for one another? What can we do apart from God's love? Then let yourself be loved. I'm preaching to myself. Let yourself be loved. 
Yada, 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 Pastor. Yada, yada, yada. You're right. Do you know what the word yada means? It's a Hebrew word. Yada means intimate knowledge. It means an intimate knowing. Almost the same as you, you would say Adam knew Eve. A deep knowing. That's what the word yada means. If you read the rest of Hosea, after he shows how great his love is, it goes into poetry from like chapter 4 to verse 11. And it talks about wise things like this and all, and, and what, what's going to be the result if you continue to run from God and all this. But the main theme of, of the rest of the book of Hosea is yada. Yada, that you may know me. That's why you're whoring. That's why you're running again. You don't know me. You don't have a deep and intimate knowledge of me. Hosea 6.3 says, Oh, that we might yada the Lord. That we might know the Lord. I asked the Lord as I was preparing this, I always ask him, is this what you want? How is this going to help the people, Lord? And I'm typically like, God, look, give me some practical steps. I mean, they need ten keys, right? They need, they need three ways to make this different. They need practical examples of how to ap apply this message so they leave here, it's not just a good message, oh, home, home, and nothing changes. Because we're, we care about real change in your life. And, and I feel like God just shared with me, this is the thing. Be loved. If you'll be loved, if you'll know me and be loved, all those other things won't be a problem. They won't be an issue. This is the main thing. Three things remain, faith, hope, and love, but love is the greatest. And it's not your love that's the main issue. It's, it's accepting his love so that you will have love. Let God love you. Romans 8.35 says, Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity? Or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? As the scriptures say, for your sake we're killed every day. We're being slaughtered like sheep. No, despite all of these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. Overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. And I'm convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death, nor life, neither angels or demons. Neither our fears for today or our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky or the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all of creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. 
for listening to the podcast today. We hope you enjoyed it and that it inspires you to live out God's Word. For more information, visit us at www.mypassion.church.